All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm uh, here with you uh, from the Borough of Queens. It is the 14th day of June, 2022. Before I talk more about today's show, I'd like to remind you, publish a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And uh, you can sign up for that letter by going to miningstocks.com or call our office here in New York at 718-457-1426. like to also uh, let you know about Chen Lin, um, his letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Chenpicks.com. If you have an interest in biotech stocks, I would suggest you might want to take a look at what Chen is doing. Uh, has had an incredible track record in the biotech sector. Uh, and uh, want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And also encourage you to send along whatever comments you have about this show to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today, Irving Resources, Noble Resources, El Oro Resources, Core Assets Corp., SK Mining, Timberline Resources, Lion One Metals, and Reina Gold Corp. I've titled today's show, Are We Nearing a Crack-Up Boom? Alistair McLeod, John Rubino, and Quentin Henning are uh, today's guests. Recently, Doug Nolan, the portfolio manager for the McIlvaney Management Tactical Short Fund, wrote the following. He said, and I quote, History suggests today's festering issue in credit, derivatives, and structured finance will prove woefully worse than anyone today appreciates. And there is little policymakers can do to remedy the situation. The cycle has changed. The amount of stimulus necessary to one more time resuscitate bubble dynamics would risk hyperinflation, end of quote. But what needs to be understood is that inflation is not rising prices, but rather it is diminishing the purchasing power of the currency and bank deposits. In a world awash with currencies and bank deposits, the real concern is the increasing desire of economic actors to reduce these balances in favor of an increase in their ownership of physical assets and goods. Alistair McLeod recently noted that, and I quote, as the crisis unfolds, we can expect increasing numbers of the public to attempt to reduce their cash and bank deposits with catastrophic consequences for their currency's purchasing power. The most logical physical money asset to flee to is gold, because that monetary metal is widely accepted and it provides portability of wealth, end of quote. In the second half of today's show, Alistair will help us understand what our policymakers do not understand, and that is how America has arrived at this horrific financial state of affairs and how you can best prepare for the massive difficulties that lie ahead. 
And while physical possession of gold is a starting point, another possible enriching asset to own is equity in companies that produce gold, a universally accepted monetary metal. And Quentin uh, Henning will update us on one company that appears to be on the cusp of a gigantic high-grade gold deposit. Uh, that is the Tuvatu gold deposit in Fiji. Lion One Mining is doing a great job of moving that towards not only uh, not only um, re- you know uh, showing us a major high-grade gold deposit, but is actually moving concretely towards production. And they do have the people to pull it off. They have a very experienced uh, producing team that's there. Uh, a very exciting story. So Quentin Henning will be with us right after the first commercial break to give us an update on that. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that John Rubino, the founder of the popular financial website dollarcollapse.com, is with me to share some of his thoughts on these tumultuous markets. Thank you so much for joining me, John. Hey, Jay. Good to be back. Um, And our timing is pretty good, (laughs) given what happened yesterday. Wow. Yes. uh, Tumultuous, I would say. Uh, I guess guess people are pretty unnerved uh, by what's going on. Um, it'd be crazy not to be, I suppose, because, you know, what the things we used to believe are, you know, at least many people in the markets believed are turning out not to be what they expected. I mean, who would have thought, well, there are people that would have thought, but most people would never have dreamed of, um, what do we have? 8%, 8.7% inflation rate, 8.6%, something like that on the CPI. Um, so where does this go, John? I mean, how how much higher can inflation go, and can the Fed get out ahead of it? Well, um, that's really the big question. You know, what can the Fed do about this, if anything, right now? And it's completely possible that there's nothing they can do. But um, let me illustrate the environment with a, a few things that happened yesterday, each of which points in a really scary direction. Um, first of all, uh, probably the big one from an American standpoint, is U.S. stocks tanked while bond yields soared. Mm-hmm. And those two things are not supposed to happen together because usually when, you know, when the stock market tanks, people pull their money out of stocks and they get into bonds, which are perceived to be safe. But with bond yields soaring, um, what we've got is the stock market pointing towards deflation. In other words, a slowing economy, lower corporate profits, lower stock prices, less wealth. Uh, while the bond market is pointing towards rising inflation. Um, Now, you put those two things together and you get stagflation, which is a a horrendous environment, both for individuals and for sitting politicians. So that would lead to chaos if that's what we've got. And yesterday, the markets screamed that that's what was coming. Now, over to Japan, the Japanese central bank Um, likes to peg its interest rates. In other words, they'll they'll say, we'll buy as many 10-year Japanese government bonds as it takes to keep the yield at a given level. And they've always succeeded at that, even though Mm -hmm. it it, forced them to print a lot of new yen. They got away with it. Well, they're trying to do that with the 10-year bond at 0.25% right now. And the market is pushing back. And uh, it's, it's not working. The current yield on that 10-year bond is 0.259%, mm-hmm. which means people are selling more bonds than the Japanese Central Bank can buy. Wow. And if they have to step up, that means they have to print even more yen, um, which you know, is, is the, the slippery slope that leads down to an inflationary crash. 
And Japan is, uh, because they've taken on so much debt, the, the Japanese government is the most indebted per capita government in the history of the human race. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're primed for a, a major financial disruption. Uh, and this is the first step. When they try to do something at the central bank level with interest rates and the markets refuse to accept their guidance. Um, third thing, cryptos crashed yesterday. They, they're down, uh, in, in total, the crypto universe uh, market cap is down from $3 trillion to $1 trillion in, in just the last six or so months. Um, and that's leaving a lot of leveraged players in that space very exposed. In other words, they borrowed money to buy Bitcoin, for instance. And now Bitcoin is below the price at which they're going to get margin calls, which means a lot of big players in the crypto space um, might go bust here in the not too distant future, which would force them to sell their cryptos, which would make it go down even more. So, yeah, you know, this is very possibly not the end of the crypto carnage uh, with ramifications all over the economy. Um, now, the big one, really, because it's happening tomorrow, is the, the Fed is poised to raise interest rates dramatically, maybe, in the face of an equities bear market. And that's something that never happens, never in our adult lifetimes mm -hmm. has the Fed done something like that. Because normally, they, by the time equities are in a bear market, in other words, when, when the broad market averages have dropped 20%, the Fed panics and they go back to easing. Mm -hmm. But they're just ramping up their tightening now because they waited too long and because inflation is now spiking and they don't have a choice. You know, like you said, 8 9% inflation, Fed has to tighten into that. But they're, the stocks are, stock market is tanking right now, and the Fed has to tighten into that as well. So who knows what that does to equity prices. And that's tomorrow. We're going to find out what they do. Yeah, and it seems as though um, the Fed or somebody, the Fed leaks information out through its, um, some of the people it has contacts with to try to get the market to not to be sh totally shocked when news comes out, Fed rate decisions are made and so forth. And the, it seems as though the market's sort of been primed for a 75 basis point hike tomorrow. And um, and maybe that's going to happen. Maybe that's what's driven, made the market so so weak, the equity market so weak, the bond market so weak in the last couple of days. But somebody suggested that maybe that's just a bit of propaganda. And maybe what we'll see tomorrow is uh, a 50 basis point hike instead of a 75. And everybody say, whoopee, we're off to the races again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that would work for stocks, I would think, uh -huh. but will uh -huh. it work for the bond market? Yeah. Or would it spike interest rates because it's a sign that the Fed is just not going to try to take inflation on at this point? Mm -hmm. And uh, and so we'll see. But yeah, I, I think we're at the point where there is no right answer for the Fed. You know, there's mm -hmm. no solution to their problems, but we still don't know what they're going to try and what the short-term effects on the markets will be of what the Fed does. But they're you know, we, we have to stress this. The guys running the Fed are not very smart, and not, ter not in terms of IQ, but in terms of understanding their jobs. They really don't know what they're doing because they've never had to understand their jobs. All they've always, ever had to do is push interest rates down and create a lot more money and give it to the big banks. That has been the sum total of the Fed's job, mm -hmm. again, for our entire adult lifetimes. And now, all of a sudden, they've actually got to navigate uncertain markets and I don't think they have the slightest idea what to do so yeah. you know expect stupidity out of the okay. Fed which leads to market chaos that's the only thing you can say with certainty about what's coming
Yeah. Well, they do know uh, what Paul Volcker did in 1979-1980. The current chairman is well aware of that. In fact, has even talked about being the second coming of Paul Volcker. (laughs) <laughs> but things are so much different than they were then, John. Uh, with only a minute left, what do you think the chances are of him really being able to get his arms around this thing and stop, you know, get control of inflation? Maybe there's a lot of pain involved with a with a deep recession like we had in 1981, but but maybe they can get control of it and we'll be off to another several decades of peace and prosperity. Well, we might be on the verge of a deep recession already, you know, with stocks tanking and, oh, uh, mortgage rates are now 6%, which is going to implode the housing market. You would think so. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it could be six months from now. We're worried about deflation and not inflation just because the market is collapsing. And, and, um, you know, we we can't know that um, because that is kind of, uh, you know how they say in climate change, it's not global warming anymore. It's climate change because it might be cold. It might be warm. You know, it's just... Mm-hmm. chaos. That's what they're predicting. Well, same thing in finance now. You can't know whether the future is inflationary or deflationary, but you can say with certainty it's chaotic, yeah, and which that's... is where gold comes in. You know, you want to own something that's stable and neutral yeah. in the face of that kind of chaos. Yeah. Ultimately, gold will come through. It isn't uh, looking too good right now. John, I'd love to talk to you more about it, but we are out of time right now. Uh, we'll uh, we'll catch up with you more on, on that issue as well as uh, Alistair McLeod. Second half of today's show, Alistair's recent article was titled Recession, Prices, and the Crack-Up Boom, and presumably in that, in that order. So you have a recession, uh, you know, and, and because of prices and interest rates uh, rising to try to, to try to quell prices, but then um, according to Alistair, he doesn't think it's very likely and we'll have, uh, unfortunately, something known that the Austrian schools call uh, a crack-up boom. Uh, we'll talk to you more about that later, John. Thank you so much for your thoughts. It's, they're very much appreciated, and, and I know our listeners uh, will find them helpful. Thanks, Jay. All right, folks, we do have to go break, but don't go away. Quentin Henning will be right back with me to talk about Lion One Mining. They really have some exciting news you're not going to want to miss, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Quentin Henning. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Lion One Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back, Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with me once again, Dr. Quentin Henning. He's here today to talk about Lion One Metals. That's a company uh, to, for which Quentin is a technical advisor. Lion One Metals trades in Toronto under the symbol LIO. You can buy it down here in the States, as I have, under the symbol LOMLF. 156.4 million shares. It's trading at $1.07 today in U.S. money, giving the U.S. market cap around 167 million dollars thanks for joining us again quentin yeah jay a pleasure uh, great story to talk about today oh it's a great story to talk about on a dismal day and the shares are not being appreciated as much as they should be because who knows why people are selling they have to they have to pay off the margin clerk and she's calling for uh, the margin or whatever but you know these are the kind of days when i think if people have some cash they want to start uh, really starting to understand the stories so they know which ones to put their money into best when things turn around. So I, I, I guess I'd like to start out by asking you if you can comment on the June 6th news release, which was just mind-blowing. It was absolutely phenomenal, one of the best, um, one of the best drill. Well, I've seen a lot of good ones, uh, but this one is really good. And just uh, tell us what it means in the Tuvato project. Yeah, look, uh, we... <laughs> As people know, we've been testing for the root or feeder part to this system. We, we actually had a very robust drill hole back in, in 2020. It was in late July of 2020. During the pandemic, you know, the company was drilling in spite of the pandemic. We were still able to operate there. Uh, and look, we've been drilling since that time, uh, which that hit, I think, was 12.7 meters of 56 grams, if I remember right. Yeah. Uh, we've been drilling holes down into this new, newly discovered 500 zone uh, very routinely. In fact, we've put out announcements over the past couple of years with many, many drill results down in that, that uh, part of the system. It's basically uh, a, a zone comprised of several structures. It's not just one structure, but it's a complex net of structures that underlies the, the main Tuvatu system, the main Tuvatu resource. And, uh, you know, we, we've persisted testing this thing both uh, down dip and along strike. And we we encountered this uh, this new zone or this new part of the 500 zone uh, in whole TUG 141. It's an absolutely remarkable result. If you think of this, this system as like a tree uh, in which you have lots of small branches uh, that, that kind of collect downwards into bigger and bigger branches, and then you, you finally reach the trunk. That's the best way to describe the Tuvatu gold system. And it's kind of like drilling a tree from the top down. The uh, existing resource at Tuvatu is comprised of, of many, many smaller loads. When I say smaller, these things are usually a meter to three meter wide. Uh, they can be very high grade. They're often, you know, uh, around 10 grams or even higher in grade. We've we've actually been drilling infill holes in some of that part of the system here recently that show just consistently uh, robust grades. Uh, but uh, you know, the, these branches they 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 come together. And and that hit we had two years ago, uh, that was an example of a we'll call it a bigger branch. You know, 12.7 meters of 56 grams. But this this hit is just over the top it's uh it's basically 21 grams per ton gold over 76 meters incredible it, yeah it is it's uh you know it's an order of magnitude bigger and and well it's bigger than anything we've seen to date at uh at tuvati mm-hmm. 
These things, uh, alkaline deposits, as you've identified, this one goes very, very deep. How deep are they so far into this, into these real high grades? Yeah, so this intercept, <clears throat> this was uh, about 443 meters down hole, uh, but this is an underground hole. TUG stands for, uh, you know, Tuvatu, UG stands for underground, UG. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was drilled from an underground platform. There's a, a decline that goes down into the Tuvatu system, and we put drill uh, cutties or dr- drill stations inside that that decline <coughs> from which we could drill to uh, to these deeper targets. So if you look at the, the true depth below surface, uh, this intercept starts at about five, a little over 500 meters below surface. Uh-huh. All right, now... You say, well, that's uh, that's fairly deep. Um, it's it's not really okay. To uh, ang- alkaline systems like this, they can extend to quite you know deep depths. You can get alkaline systems going down a kilometer and a half or two, very routine. Uh-huh. Okay, so these these systems are are, are deep rooted. They're related to you know these gold rich magmas that uh, that basically they cool and crystallize somewhere down below the surface. And the fluids that came off of those magmas uh, get flushed upwards as the, the magma crystallizes. Basically, it flushes all that gold out of, the, out of the magma and into the fluids, which ascend upwards through cracks and, and fissures. And they like to find the biggest cracks they can. You know, these, you know, this crack that we've hit, you can kind of make the analogy that this is like a superhighway, uh, you know, compared to the other cracks that, that we've drilled so far. This is a major, major conduit. And it, it's probably deep-rooted. In other words, uh, you know, the, the gold in this will probably extend down for quite some distance. So we're very optimistic, you know, we are uh, that we found a major trunk in the system. Now, you know, then the question becomes, you know, do we have uh, just one trunk? You know, is there just one tree here? Uh, no, not likely. Uh, if you look at the distribution of of gold at Tuvatu, the this gold system is over seven kilometers long on a strike. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no way on earth that this one feeder uh, generated all the gold that we see at surface and surface samplings and s- stuff like that. So this is just one of what I think will probably prove to be uh, multiple feeders. And uh, at least now we know what, w- how these feeders occur and what they look like and, and we can better target them. You know, using geophysics and stuff, we can We've learned what this feeder is, and we can uh, go look for for more of them. But in the meantime, this one feeder alone is is just insane. I mean, this thing is truly a game changer for this deposit in the company. Well, definitely. And uh, I mean, I would just maybe should remind listeners that they did an economic study years ago on what you call the those little those little limbs. Uh, but as I recall, Quentin, the average grade, the millhead grade, was something around maybe a half an ounce or maybe six six tenths of an ounce for that lo- quote unquote lower grade stuff. It, it was actually lower than that. It was it oh. was closer to nine or ten grams. Okay, so if you look oh, at okay. the the initial economic study, which you said is, is yeah. a few years old, it was actually looking at uh, narrow narrower loads that were grading. You know, eight, nine, ten grams per ton. Yeah, correct. But that eight, nine, ten grams per ton would have taken dilution into effect, so that the mining grade would have been somewhere in that range, perhaps. That's what is anticipated. Correct. Okay. Yeah, that, okay. Well, yeah. so I mean, 
as I recall, the economic, the operating economics at that stage, it was fairly, you know, small deposit, and, and now you're you're building up ounces. But even so, the economics were pretty pretty good. And so, if we're looking at something, um, you know, a magnitude higher grade, even though it's underground, and I guess because you have underground workings, um, you're able now to drill from underground. And I would says suppose that as mining takes place and the company is planning to go into production on a small scale, I think fairly soon, right? If that's the case, then they should be able to continue to, to drill from underground uh, the deeper levels. Yeah, that's correct. So, so yeah, that, that brings up some interesting question. I mean, this, this new discovery obviously is going to be a focus for the company. Uh, if they're going to develop a mine, you know, a modest scale mine, let's, uh, let's look at how we could bring this material in. As you said, this is considerably higher grade. You know, this is probably twice, a little over twice the grade that we mm-hmm. uh, have seen in the, the upper parts of the system. Uh, so there's one big win. Um, the other other aspect is, you know, it's really not that far below the existing decline. So it might take a, a few months or a few you know, 10, 15 months to get down, ramp down into this part of the system. It is doable uh, in a, a small scale mine. This is something we could tackle. Now, <clears throat> Drilling it, uh, yes, uh, as you can imagine, this is has generated a lot of excitement, and we have uh, used the same drill that drilled this hole. Uh, we've oriented it to do an offset hole uh, to test further test this this high grade zone. So that that hole, as I understand, it, is underway now. Uh, but we're also going to keep testing this thing with uh, some surface holes as well. So we got our surface rigs in in play there and. Because it is the dry season, it's relatively easy to to position one of those rigs uh, in a, a position it can drill some of these deep deep areas. So we're going to hit this thing hard here. Um, I would expect it will probably take a few weeks, maybe two to four weeks to get back down into this part of the system. But I, I think we're going to see uh, some really uh, impressive uh, results out of this system now that we know kind of where, where it is and where it's headed. Um, so longer term than I, so what, what are the plans for production? Um, I think, are they still on, are they still planning to on a small scale, start, start um, producing from some of those higher level, uh, the higher level, the higher up portion of the, of the deposit. That's correct. The uh, infill drilling is, is well underway. That's needed to, to help refine that mine plan. Uh, every, every, facet of that project is underway and the target is to be in production uh, by late 2023 um, <clears throat> so that that is entirely uh, underway and and moving uh, forward on schedule now really interesting another in, uh, aspect of this new discovery is it is within the permitted mine uh, plan so oh, good. this new discovery you know it's not it doesn't take any additional permitting or anything like that we could modify the, the current plans for underground development and and put a decline out, down into this area. So um, <clears throat> we're, we're all over it right now. Is management planning to put out some economics on this before it, uh, before it sets up a mill and all? Um, on the deep part, there's really just this, this drill hole now. It's going to take a, a few more drill holes to kind of start putting a picture together. Uh-huh. But I would say by late this year, I think we'll have enough drilling in here including that the drilling that's been to, done to date along the 500 zone that we can start putting some uh, some numbers to this 
Yeah, I know there's a lot of excitement in the company and people that are following this closely uh, because they're, uh, these, these alkaline deposits are huge, uh, the ones that uh, some of them in that part of the world, um, multi-million ounce high-grade deposits, and as I think you, you called them uh, more rare than hen's teeth or something like that when you first told this story on the show. <laughs> And, uh, and and when you find one, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're company makers, really. So They are. Uh, they're highly desired by major mining companies, these alkaline gold systems, because they tend to be high grade. They tend to be very high margin. And they can deliver a lot of gold with a small tonnage. So uh, this, this is yet another example. Um, there's not all that many around the world. I don't want to make it sound like there's a zillion of these things. There's not. But um, the Porger deposit in, in New Guinea, direct analog to this one. Uh, Vaticola, which is on the in, in Fiji, it's uh, part of the same series of calderas. It's about 40 kilometers northeast of Tuvatu, so there you have a, a 10 plus million ounce system right next door. <clears throat> uh, but we have systems, you know, like this in Colorado here where I live. Uh, we have uh, even up in Canada, the the Kirkland Lake deposit, believe it or not, is an alkaline system. Mm-hmm. So these things, uh, they're 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 Special. They they generate very good returns and they're again highly sought after by the mining industry. All right, very good. I guess uh, I, I, in terms of share price uh, drivers, we need to just watch the news. There should be more drill results coming out and um, pretty soon, I guess. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I think you'll see some news about you know the plan, the strategy uh, to tackle this going yeah. forward, and then as we drill those holes, the the one from underground as well as one from surface. I think we'll have lots of news uh, to talk about, you know, further drill intercepts into this area. All right. Very good. Thank you, Quentin, for giving us an update on this very exciting story. And we'll look forward to keeping up with it going forward. All right. Um, we do have to go to break now, folks, uh, but don't go away. Uh, we'll be right back with Alistair McLeod, who's going to talk about the growing likelihood of a market event known as a crack-up boom. That's a term that the Austrian School of Economics has coined, and um, well, Alistair will tell you why he thinks that's the case and, and what that all means and might mean for your investments. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. Reina Gold is a newly listed company trading on the OTCQB under the symbol REYGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol REYG. Its flagship asset, La Gloria, is a 24,000-hectare district-scale property in the prolific Mojave Sonora Megashear in Mexico, between La Herradura, Mexico's biggest gold mine by Fresnillo, and El Shanate mine by Alamos Gold. La Gloria has very high-grade sampling and is in the first phase of a 10,000-meter drill program. The technical team is led by Dr. Peter McGaw, co-founder of Mag Silver, and Doug Kirwin, former VP of Ivanhoe Mines. Learn more at reinagold.com. Timberline Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship Eureka project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR 
and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Any Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have Alistair McLeod here with us uh, once again. Thank you for joining me, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. And I should remind everybody, uh, it's uh, goldmoney.com every Thursday. Uh, uh, what is the specific page there? It's, um, it's research. It's research, research and, then, and then insights. And, insights, um, that's right. Just, just follow your nose from there. Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, I recommend you do follow your notes, folks, uh, because there's a lot of good material. Uh, it's one of those must-read pieces that I look forward to in my inbox every week. Well, Alistair, your June 2nd issue, uh, it was uh, titled Recession, Prices, and the Crack-Up Boom. Um, you know, obviously people, recession, they've heard that word, prices, they know about that, but or they think they do. But Crack-up boom is a term that Austrian economists are familiar with, but not the Keynesians have, well, they don't like that term, I think. They don't believe it even exists. There's no such thing as a crack-up boom. But there is a crack-up boom. It's happened throughout history. Uh, Can you define it for our listeners and then maybe uh, also talk about how it's created? Yeah, it's um, basically what the Austrian economists uh, noted uh, in the great inflations, the end of the great inflations in Europe in the early 1920s, was there came a point where the general public, having um, always believed that the currency, even though it's losing purchasing power, would never go down to zero, it would somehow stabilize. They then lost all hope of that and basically got rid of every piece of currency they could as quickly as they could for goods and um, whether they needed the goods or not. I mean, the imperative was to just get rid of the money. That was the crack up boom. The, the boom bit basically being uh, the purchase of, of the goods, if you like, with the discarded money. And um, it really meant that uh, money became worthless shortly after that point. Uh, obviously, we don't have the same situation as you know defined in that way today but we see some signs of it uh, people are running out and buying things that they don't really need and um i don't know about in america but if you look at second-hand yachts and motorboats over here mm-hmm. there uh, the prices are through the roof mm-hmm. uh, motor cars second-hand motor cars prices yeah. through the roof uh, now, I mean, there's always an excuse. You can say, well, you know, there's supply problems with new cars and all the rest of it, and people can't wait. Yeah, sure. But, um, you know, when you see this sort of activity, um, you know, it's it's ringing bells, if you like. Um, it's not quite the crack-up boom, but it seems there's so much in common with it. And not only that, but you can see people beginning to think, well, I need to rush out and buy this, buy that, before the price goes up. 
-hmm. And that, if you like, is very much the psychology behind the crack-up boom. So we're not actually in a crack-up boom, but you can see it's, it's, um, it's rhyming with it, if you like. Yeah, yeah, people are starting to think that way now, I believe, uh, to a certain extent. Um, and But there's still a lot of confidence, Alistair, I think, in the Fed's ability to tame this thing, to get, a, get out ahead of it, even though inflation is at 8%. Now, I see the 10-year is up to, I don't know, it's getting close to 3.5% now. But, you know, compared to 8.7 uh, consumer inflation rate, that's... That's still woefully ad- inadequate to to get us anywhere near a level that you would think would would get a grip on or get a handle on inflation, right? Yes, I mean it's it's um, the Fed has got wet, left way behind, uh, but there is, if you like, a, another problem embedded in that, and that is that if interest rates were to reflect the loss of purchasing power of the currency, and it's not just in the dollar, we're talking about all the major currencies, yeah. then uh, interest rates would be so high that mull investments would be, um, uh, would be triggered. I mean, they would start collapsing. You'd find that bank credit, which incidentally is already beginning to contract, would really start falling off the cliff. And we would be driven into um, uh, an economic slump very, very rapidly. Now, the mistake that the Keynesians uh, make is that they think it's a sort of black and white situation. You're either in a recession or you're in growth. Now, actually, both those are expressions of the money, not what's going on in the economy. I mean, when you get growth in GDP, it's actually growth of the quantity of money. It doesn't tell you how that money is actually being deployed, whether it's being deployed economically, uh, efficiently, progressively, however you might like to define it. Equally, um, in recession, it's, uh, it's the, the contraction of bank credit. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the effect of the contraction of bank credit uh, is to basically um, uh, stifle uh, any uh, economic activity. And, but the interesting thing is that unlike um, cycles in history, this cycle of bank credit is purely financial. And it means that uh, banks have um, not just assets on their own balance sheets in the form of bonds, which then where they will begin to ditch, but also uh, they have um, uh, they have collateral which uh, secures loans, and that collateral is essentially financial, and uh-huh. that's going down the swanee as well. So, you know, this is basically something which is inherently financial rather than, you know, the good old-fashioned um, slump recession, depression, whatever word you like to use. Right, and it's, uh, it, I, I would argue that it's, you know, when the United States went off the gold standard uh, that and, you know, created a petrodollar, it allowed the United States as, as a, uh, to have the world's reserve currency and to abuse it and to create enormous amounts of, of money that's sloshing around, creating malinvestment. So my, our 37-year-old son said, Dad, this looks an awful lot like what we went through with the dot-com uh, collapse to me. He's, he's observing what's going on now. Um, and, you know, you can see this with, with interest rates so suppressed, money is free to go to all kinds of places without much consideration of its cost, right? And that leads to a malinvestment or a misappropriation, a misappropriation of capital, does it not? Yes, that's very true. Um, but the, the point I'd like to make about this mm-hmm. is that after the inflationary 70s, um, uh-huh. uh, obviously uh, what the authorities wanted was another means of ensuring that um, 
uh, you know, those inflationary times, the fall in purchasing power of the currency could be contained. And yeah. um, that it was really from that moment that what they did was they started creating financial speculation. Um, you had the big bang in London. You had the uh, the, the um, uh, re reprieving of the Glass-Steagall Act in the early 1990s, and this all set the scene for banks to throw capital into financial markets, finan markets for financial assets, and they have absolutely boomed. And consequently, people have flocked into the dollar to benefit from this. It is that, it is that um, speculative bubble which has supported the dollar without interest rates having to rise. And indeed, we have seen interest rates fall, decline from the early 1980s all the way through to the low point uh, in uh, 2020 when um, the dollar, you know, the dollar rates went to zero. So mm -hmm. this is, that is, if you like, it was a deliberate act of policy. Now that time is now ended. It is finished. And this is the point which I think people are gradually waking up to, that it is no longer a financial uh, financially driven um, economy. Suddenly, you know, there are different things. The Russians have pointed the way with commodities. We find that, um, you know, the purchasing power of our currencies are basically going down quite rapidly. And there's a threat of them going down even more rapidly. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, crack up booms and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. You can see that the sentiment is beginning to get into people's minds that this is a very, very different environment. And the effect on markets, I'm afraid, is to collapse them. And that's basically what we've been seeing this week. Do you think that Chairman Powell understands this, that he sees the danger of this? There's some people that think he does and that he would like to really uh, do what Paul Volcker did and, and get a handle on this thing. But I, I mean, I just can't see how he can, given the, the magnitude of debt. Uh, and all of the structured finances, uh, uh, you know, derivatives and things that were not anywhere near Paul, the levels they uh, they are now during Paul Volcker's day. Do you see, do you think, first of all, do you think that our chairman understands it, understands the potential of, of a crack-up boom? Well, I, um, I don't think he does. Um, I think he sees enormous dangers uh, of that. There must be no doubt. I mean, he would have to be made of stone not to see, see uh -huh. the problems that not only the Fed faces, but more importantly, um, the ECB and the Bank of Japan. I mean, they, they're looking, uh, you know, they, they have um, banking systems where the global systemically important banks have asset to equity ratios of, you know, into the 60s and 70s. I mean, this is unheard of. And it's it's the consequence of negative interest rates. I mean, you know, when I look at the average level of uh, the asset to equity ratio in the Eurozone, I mean, we're talking about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven banks. I th I think the, 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 the average is over 50 times. I oh. mean, you know, um, uh, excessively um, extended bank credit would normally be a bank balance sheet of somewhere between 12 and 15 times assets to equity ratio. Here we're talking over 50. And the same in Japan. I mean, if you look at Japan, I mean, because um, I've been running these figures off for the article which is coming out uh, this week. Uh -huh. I mean, you've got Mitsuho. Their asset to equity ratio is 62 times. Sumitomo, 48 times. Mitsubishi, 40 times. I mean, this is this is unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. And so now just imagine contracting cre cre bank credit, imagine um, uh, bond yields rising, 
um, you know, uh, uh, financial asset values falling. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going we're going to have a banking crisis very very soon, and it is yeah. going to be a major one, a really major one. And worse than that, the central banks are all in the hole themselves. I mean, I think it was what it was about ten days ago. The Fed said that unrealized losses on its bond uh, bond holdings were three hundred and thirty billion dollars. Wow. Well, when I tell you that the equity on the Fed's balance sheet is fifty billion, right. um, you know. And when I tell you that since that March uh, end, uh, uh, bonds have continued to fall, and I would guess that the, def- the the deficit is now more like half a trillion, and this is on Fed's balance sheet. This is, I mean, and if you look at the 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 uh, Bank of Japan, I mean, it's even worse because yeah. they've been QE since uh, twenty uh, the year two thousand, and not only that, but they've, you know, they've they've got uh, longer dated bonds than the Fed on average. Mm-hmm. The ECB again, I mean, it's they are the central banks are so underwater. The balance sheets basically are bust. And yet we expect them to rescue, to underwrite the commercial banking system in a commercial banking crisis, bank credit contraction crisis. I mean, how yeah. this is going to pay, play out, um, uh, you know, it's this is a very dangerous time. And I have to say that anyone, um, you know, who hasn't considered this really ought to get their brains into gear because this is not good. Well, the arithmetic, the math just doesn't work, Alistair. Someone pointed out the other day that if the U.S. borrowing rate went to simply around 4 or 4.5%, 30% of our budget would be for interest alone. That's equal to what we spend for defense. It's equal to what we spend for Social Security. And if you go to the kind of rate that would, you know, equal to our CPI or something like that, I mean, don't you think that people would finally start to wake up and see that there's no way that that this thing can't implode or explode, one of the two. Well, I think the the, the vast majority of people are wise after the event. And, um, yeah, wise after now. Yeah, this is certainly going to be the case with, with, with uh, Keynesians. I mean, we're discussing this with, I think, some foresight of an event. Um, and we're, we're not really sharing this with very many people. Um, no, I think I think I mean, you, you know, you mentioned the financing problems for the uh, US government. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. But that's nothing compared with the, the, the bigger problem in financial markets and for the for for the currencies themselves and for the whole economy itself. And, and as I say, it's not just America. It's everywhere. It is absolutely everywhere. I mean, even China uh, has got huge, great problems and they have. Um, uh, they have put aside money in case uh, the banks need extra capital and all the rest of it. I mean, I saw that announcement uh, the other day. I think it was in the Asia Financial uh, uh-huh. Financial Asia or something. One of one of those uh, Far Eastern mm-hmm. um, magazines. So, uh, you know, everybody is in difficulty. The the only country that isn't, funnily enough, is Russia. Um, yeah. I know, you know, we've got um, lots of propaganda about, uh, you know, how awful it is in Russia and all the rest yeah. of it. But actually, their economy is doing jolly well. Um, and they have the best performing currency. And when I look at uh, the trend of uh, bond yields, uh, the only one going down is the Russian. You know? <laughs> That's incredible. They had to raise interest rates from, I think, uh, I think Putin raised interest rates from nine, or their central bank did, from nine and a half to 20 percent. And that and then the, the currency sort of stabilized, and then they came in with backing, or, or let's say they tied uh, the ruble to, I think, 5,000 
5,000 rubles per gram of gold, at least for, for a temporary period of time. And then they came out and required unfriendly nations to pay for gas in rubles. And the, and the currency has just gone really nothing but straight up since then. Uh, compared to everybody else's. And yes, we don't hear the good news. We don't hear, well, it's not good news, I guess, to the adversaries of Russia, but they are doing pretty well. I want to ask you this, though. You mentioned that Putin is, or that Russia is putting this together to protect themselves. They are now, they are really, they are really forcing the world to look at money backed by something that's real rather than just hot air, or right? And so you see this as a way that Russia is protecting themselves against the carnage that could come from, uh, you, you know, from a dollar um, disaster. Yeah, uh, there's been a change, um, uh, Jay, in their approach. I mean, up until very recently, uh, they were at financial war with us. Um, mm -hmm. I, there's no other way to describe it. And now I think that that war has effectively paused because what Russia is now doing is it's protecting itself from what it sees as the inevitable collapse of the Western financial system. Mm -hmm. And uh, what it, the way it's done it is it's in effect tied its currency to energy prices. Um, and uh, in the broader sense, let us say commodities. So they've, they've made it a sort of commoditized currency, whereas mm -hmm. our currencies are all based on yesterday's financial story, which is now over. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, because interest rates are rising and they're going to rise to the point where the whole system falls over. I mean, just look at those numbers I was quoting about the ECB, about the Eurozone banks, about the Bank of Japan and the Japanese GSIBs. I mean, this is this is a very, very simple conclusion. You know, they're all going to fall over and interest rates will rise to that point. So it's um, it's a very dangerous time. Well, you mentioned uh, in one of your recent articles, I guess it was the one I'm referring to, no, actually, protection from a currency collapse, uh, last Thursday's article, uh, reasons why, um, you know, why governments don't really want to go that route and back their currencies or, or go to a gold standard of some kind. And uh, you, you're suggesting that Russia is sort of going to sort of a quasi gold standard or something related to it. But uh, but there are a number of reasons why governments don't like to go to honest money. Uh, they like to, I guess, because they like to be involved in dishonest vote buying. I don't know. But um, I, I was wondering about the um, the cryptos, which have really fallen out of it. They've really been smacked down really hard. And uh, a partner of mine named Chen Lin, who we do a lot of things with, uh, observed that the government, the U.S. government, has come out in favor of stablecoin recently, has made some very strong positive statements about stablecoin, and he thinks that may have caused the cryptos to take uh, to take a hit. Does that make any sense to you? Not really, no. Um, no. I think that, I mean, the, the, the stablecoin situation, uh, funny enough, I was looking at Tether today, um, uh -huh. and it appears from their statements that uh, they are all in short-term stuff. There's something like 6% of their assets are in crypto. Oh. Now, that is the danger, I think, to, um, uh, you know, that could force them to break the buck. Um, but um, I, it's not a serious, it's not a really serious situation. I mean, the fact of the matter is that cryptos are just a speculative play uh, as an alternative, um, and it seems in terms of correlation anyway, as an alternative to some of the hairier um, tech plays. 
you know, they're going down and uh, Bitcoin are collapsing with it. And yeah. I mean, the fact is that the, uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin can never work as money. Um, and when people understand it's just a speculative play, I think it will be dead. All right. With just a couple of minutes left, I have to ask you about gold. It's not performing terribly well so far with inflation where it is. Uh, I know interest rates are rising. The dollar is getting stronger vis-a-vis -vis other uh, trashy currencies, the, the West, you know, the, the, the yen, for goodness sakes, which is going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, the euro isn't a whole lot better. Um, and I don't know about your about your currency there, uh, Alistair. I don't want to be disrespectful to your your. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, why what why isn't gold performing better? Because I know one, well, a lot of people would like to hear what you have to say. Okay, it's very, very simple. Uh, basically, the whole of the investment establishment is Keynesian and doesn't understand gold. It right. thinks that they've moved on from gold, which is why, you know, people are sort of looking for alternatives. And this is right. why cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and so on and so on. Um, so that's that is, if you like, the underlying reason that they always get gold wrong. First, they get it wrong. And then suddenly they begin to realize that uh, actually, um, you know, the best protection is gold. And we will see that. The other point I would like to make is that the system by which I mean the bullion banks are desperately short in the paper markets. They are trying to close those positions down ahead of the half year, ahead of the, the half year end, at the end of this month. Mm -hmm. And so it is, they are in a desperate attempt to try and smash the, the price of gold in order to close their positions, or at the very least have a valuation point, which does their balance sheets the least damage yeah. on the, at the end of this month. So, I mean, if I'm right about that, and I'm, I'm convinced I am, what you will see is that after the end of this month, you will see the gold price begin to recover. They've already gone long of silver on COMEX, net long of silver on oh, COMEX. Uh -huh. so, this is something, you know, it's it, every time this happens, when they get into a position where they can see the gold price is going to rise, they have to hit the price, persuade us all to sell to them so that they close down their shorts, and then we're off to the races. And that's roughly where we are. Well, it uh, would certainly make sense. Thank you so much, Alistair, for your time again and for sharing your thoughts. Very much appreciated by our listeners. And uh, we'll look to keep up with your your. Um, your story that's coming out tomorrow. What was it again? Your title. Uh, you're gonna. Well, it's actually it, it's it's or, actually on Thursday. On uh, Thursday, I mean. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. I'm looking at the banking system, and uh, oh, it's it's an absolute horror show. Okay, well, I guess uh, you don't have to go to movies anymore to uh, for horror shows. You can just you can just <laughs> read. <laughs> well, we laugh, but it's not really a laughing matter. Thank you so much, Alistair, for being with us. Always a pleasure having you. My pleasure, Jay. All right, folks. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute will join me. Michael Oliver is back and Patrick Highsmith of Timberline Resources. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 